blind and the lame outside of the temple so that people going in and out of the temple for worship would give alms to those in need. In fact, Acts chapter 3, we see that when Peter and John are going up to the temple and there's that man lame that's been laid at the temple. So this was a very common occurrence. I want you to think with me about this man's world. He's never seen his father or mother. He knows all about their love. He knows their voices. He's never laid eyes on them. He's never seen the beauty of a sunrise or sunset. He's never seen the fishermen out on the Sea of Galilee. He's never witnessed things like that. His whole life has been spent in darkness. Now, to the disciples, this would have presented a theological problem because here's what they would have thought. They would have thought behind every physical affliction or defect lies a sin, generally the sin of the afflicted one. And so they would have been thinking, what is this guy guilty of? Now, folks, that was the thinking of the day. The Jews traced each particular sorrow to a sin. I think of Job chapter 4, verse 7 that says, Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? Now, folks, don't we sometimes do some of the same stuff today? Somebody comes to you and says, hey, pray for me. I lost my job last week. Now, one of the things that we might be thinking in our minds, we might be thinking, what did this guy do to lose his job? Now, we know that's not the case at all with layoffs and so forth, but that's at least one of the things that we might be thinking. Did he do something wrong and he got fired? And so oftentimes we do some of the same stuff. We connect suffering and hardship and trial and tribulation with with wrongdoing. And that's the kind of reasoning they would have been engaged in uh, when they saw this man. And let me say, in a sense, yes, all evil and suffering can be traced back to the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. The Bible tells us so. And Paul makes this very clear in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5, that we were in Adam when Adam sinned. Adam was man. He was the federal head of the human race. And so when he sinned, we sinned. We were in his loins, so to speak. It's not just that we later sin ourselves, which is also true, but we sinned when Adam sinned, and so we share the guilt of the original couple. Now, lest you think that sounds unfair, I want you to remember the other side of the argument that Paul presents there in Romans 5. Paul also says that we are in Christ, that Christ died on the cross in our place, our substitute for sin. And so we were in Adam, yes, but we're also in Christ. If we're a believer, Christ died for us. What Christ did for us on the cross, God also counts toward you if you're in Christ. 
But there's another problem also being presented in John 9. As far as this young man's personal sin, which is after the likeness of, of Adam's sin, how can this be true if, if the man was born with a defect before he had had the opportunity to do right or wrong? In that case, he could not have brought it upon himself through his own misconduct. And so then their thoughts would have turned to the parents. Is he being punished for the sin of his parents? Because remember, God had said in the Old Testament he would punish sin to the third and fourth generation. And so could this man's parents or even his grandparents be responsible for his blindness? Now, to dilemmas like this, they had worked out still another related solution, an, an added layer of guilt. They claimed that a child born with a defect may, after all, be the direct cause of his own misfortune, for he may have, uh, he may have committed acts of sin while he was still in the womb. This was their thinking. They traced the rabbis, the rabbinic tradition, they traced it back to Genesis 25, the struggle of Esau and Jacob in the womb. And what the rabbis concluded was that in the womb, this struggle that was going on inside the womb of their mother was that Esau was trying to murder Jacob. I guess if your twin brother's trying to murder you in the womb, you don't have too many places to run and hide, do you? <laughs> but they, the rabbis had concluded that, that a child could sin in the womb during that nine months of gestation. Now, all of that serves as the background to verses 1 and 2. Here was, here was a man with problems... And somebody is to blame. Here's a man suffering, and it's somebody's fault. Whose fault is it? Secondly, this morning, I want you to see the pronouncement from the one who gives life. Pick up reading in verse 3. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no, no one can work. As long as I am the light of the world, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back. Seeing. Notice what Jesus does in verse 3 here. To their problem, to their perplexity, he gives an answer. Now folks, aren't you glad that Jesus has the answers to the dilemmas of life? You know, we might fault the disciples for not understanding life at times, but we have to give them credit. 
because they talked to the Lord about things they were wrestling with. And when it came to many of their questions. And that's what some of you here today need to do. You have questions, you have dilemmas, you have problems. Make those a matter of prayer. Talk to the Lord about it. Ask for His wisdom and and insight. It's amazing. Some people try to handle everything on their own. Go to the Lord with it. Jesus knows exactly why this man is suffering. You see, he knows everything. Remember what John had said in the prologue to John? John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Hebrews 1, it says... In these last days, God has spoken to us through His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world, and He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature, and He upholds all things by the word of His power. He knows everything, and He has all power. In John chapter 8, Jesus has just said That he is the great I am. Remember that from the book of Exodus? God said to Moses, tell them, I am has sent you. Well, in John chapter 8, they're having this discussion, the religious leaders with Jesus. And and Jesus identifies himself as the great I am. He's claiming deity for himself. He's eternal. He's all-powerful. He's immutable. He never changes. He's all-knowing. And Jesus responds by saying it was neither this man who sinned nor his parents. Now, folks, that's the voice of authority, isn't it? Sometimes people will say to me, Pastor... Why do you think so-and-so is going through what he's going through? And I have to say, I don't have a clue. But I know somebody who does know. Jesus says, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then look at what he goes on to say in verses uh, 4 and 5. He, that he's not only the, the all-wise and all-knowing God, but he's active in creation. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He's active. He knows everything. He has all power. And he's also working. God is working. You say, what does that have to do with it? Some people go through problems and and what do they say? Where's God? God's absent. No, He's not. He's with you. And He's working. Jesus points out this illness was for the glory of God. God had His own plan and purposes in this illness. Now, folks, let's talk again about suffering for a moment. Stay with me while I work up to my point. You you know what I'm about to say because we've been talking about these very things the past few weeks. And so for most of you, this is nothing more than review. We know that sometimes suffering is because of sin. Cosmic, personal 
or somebody else's sin. Now, to some people that might seem like overly simplistic answers, but it's no less true. For example, here is a man who suffers horribly with his health because of years and years of alcohol abuse or drug abuse. And he's mistreated his body. And so now he's suffering. He's paying the consequences. You may know somebody like that. Or somebody might come down with an STD because of promiscuity. Suffering because of personal sin. Sometimes you suffer because of somebody else's sin. Last week I had noticed a, an, an, old, an old classic Mach 1 Mustang sitting in David Fink's driveway up on, up on those stilts, mechanic lifts. I stopped in to see David, and he'd, he'd got this, bought this old Mustang Mach 1 with the 351 Cleveland in it, and he's going to restore it like David Fink does. Now, when, when I think of a Mach 1, I, I can't help but think of something very tragic. I grew up in Charlotte, and our next-door neighbors, the Morgans, uh, they had three sons. Their oldest son was Dave. Dave was 20 at the time, and Dave's girlfriend, Marie, was 18. And the Morgans were avid sailboaters. They had a catamaran sailboat, and they would go around all over the place, and they would enter into sailboat competitions. It was the Saturday, the day before Father's Day, and Dave and Marie had gone somewhere in North Carolina in a sailboat race. And they'd had to drop out that day because of rudder problems with the sailboat. And they were coming back into Charlotte that night about 10.30 or 11 on Highway 16. Back in the days when Highway 16 was just a little two-lane curvy highway. And they were still north of 85. They were, they were coming into Charlotte. And there were a couple of guys... Leaving Charlotte, going up Highway 16, they were racing. One of them was in a souped-up Mach 1 Mustang, and a nurse getting off of her uh, second shift at one of the downtown Charlotte hospitals said when they passed her, they were probably both uh, doing well over 100 miles an hour. And the guy in the Mach 1 decides they're coming to a curve, a blind curve, and he's going to get out in the oncoming traffic lane, and he's going to pass his buddy for the lead. And he meets Dave and Murray head on, and they're in a little bright orange Volkswagen Beetle. Back in the day when the Volkswagen Beetle, the front, of course, was just the open trunk up there, the engine in the back. Dave 20, Marie 18, both of them killed instantly. Dave's dad, our next door neighbor Don, wanted my dad to take him to see the car. He wanted to see the car. Dad said he'd never seen anything like it in his life. Essentially, the front bumper and the back bumper were matched together. The car lengthwise was just a flat sandwich. In fact, Dad said the steering column and the steering wheel was actually out the back glass. 
That's how smashed the car was. Killed instantly, young people, lives snuffed out because of the sin of others. Also, the Bible says when Adam and Eve sinned that the whole created order was subjected to corruption. That's what I called cosmic sin. Sin affected the very cosmic order. Folks, you didn't have tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis in Genesis 1 and 2. You have them after the fall in Genesis 3. And then praise God in Revelation 21 and 22 when we, where we see the new heavens and the new earth. You won't ever see natural disasters again that take hundreds or even thousands of lives. Paul also in Romans 8 talks about the fall of Adam and Eve. That, that sin corrupting the entire universe. So natural disasters. Sometimes suffering is because of Satan. We have an enemy. Remember Job? Satan was allowed by God. He had to get permission from God to attack Job. And Satan used the forces of nature. He, uses, he used bands of bad men who were going around. They killed some of his children. And, and he was also able to use health problems in Job. Satan used all of that to cause untold suffering for Job. 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us that Satan is as a roaring lion going about to and fro in the earth seeking someone to devour. Some suffering is because of saintliness, because we're children of God. God disciplines us. This suffering is corrective because we're saints. We're God's children and God is growing us through the hardship and suffering. Some suffering is because of the sufficiency of God's grace. We're not told why. But some suffering, it just happens. We can't put a finger on it. Paul, for instance, had that thorn in the flesh and he wanted that thorn gone. Nobody likes suffering. If you know somebody going through suffering and they say that they are enjoying it, they're probably a case for counseling. I don't care how mature in Christ you are, you don't like suffering. Here was the Apostle Paul and the Bible says he begged God to take it away. And God said, I'm not going to take it away, but my grace will be sufficient for you. And then some suffering like here is because God is wanting to do something bigger through that that will bring Him glory. Now folks, this is different from what I just said about God telling Paul, my grace is sufficient. Some suffering, yes, is so that we will learn God's strength and grace. But what I'm talking about now is suffering that God allows because He's going to do something through it that is going to bring Him glory in a greater way than had that suffering not happened. And that was the case with this man here. God had not taken his blindness away. God had a bigger purpose in it. Because this man was going to be one of the prime exhibits to the world for all ages to come that Jesus Christ is indeed the Savior, the light of the world. Now folks, I've told you before, 
John's gospel records miracles. The first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, called synoptic gospels, meaning similar, because they're similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record parables of Jesus. John doesn't do that. John, on the other hand, records miracles of Jesus. Simeons, signs that point to something else. In other words, they were not to become miracle chasers. And sadly, that's what some of them did. They became miracle chasers and they they missed the whole point of the miracles. The miracles that Jesus did were designed to show that He is indeed the Son of God. You see, the miracles that Jesus did in John's gospel were things that the people knew that only God could do. And so if here's this man, Jesus, doing miracles that only God can do, who must he be? He must be God. That's the conclusion they were supposed to come to. And that's the purpose of John's gospel with these miracles. He's doing the works of God and so therefore he must be God. Jesus said you are all wrong about this man. He's not suffering because of his sin or his parents' sin. It was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. And the next thing Jesus did was to open his eyes. You see the miracle had a purpose. It was to illustrate that Jesus is the light of the world. Stay with me here for a moment. The man had been in physical darkness. Jesus is going to give him physical sight. But the physical sight is going to be an example of what Jesus likewise does spiritually. Many are in spiritual darkness, but Jesus is able to give you salvation, to give you spiritual light. This is one of those times in the Bible when the physical illustrates the spiritual. Jesus is not only all-knowing, but He works the works of God in the problems of life. Folks, there are things that people go through. They don't know why they suffer the way they do. They they learn through their suffering that God's grace is sufficient for them to make it. God works in them through the suffering. God doesn't bypass the suffering. He doesn't bypass the problem. And then He uses the problem in people's lives to bring glory to Himself. He does something through the problem that ends up testifying to countless others what God is able to do and what happens? God ends up getting greater glory. Now folks, we can't draw up charts on it and carefully analyze and define it all, but we all know it when it happens. How many times have you seen this happen? It's through somebody's problem that God gets glory. 
They would have never asked for that problem, but God ended up using that problem in their life for His purposes. I think of Fanny Crosby. She wrote many of the hymns in our hymn book. Due to a childhood accident, she lost her eyesight. She lived to be 90 years old. Now early on, she determined she wanted God to use her blindness for His glory. And she wrote countless hymns that continue to be a blessing to the church today. Hymns that bring glory to God. I remember years ago when I was in seminary, Connie and I visited a church, Wedgwood Baptist Church in Fort Worth. Now, we didn't end up joining there. We liked the church. It was a great church. But you remember what happened at Wedgwood? In fact, it was right after I'd come to Pitts here that a gunman walked in on a Wednesday night, I think it was. They were having a youth meeting and, and he killed and injured a bunch of young people. Wedgwood Baptist in Fort Worth, Texas. Al Meredith, the pastor, he went on TV and, and the, all the major news stations carried it. He, they covered the funeral and, and Al presented the gospel. I mean, not just little snippets, but I mean, he laid out the gospel. And millions, millions all over the globe heard the gospel and scores of people came to faith in Christ through that shooting. Now, does that mean that those murders were good? Absolutely not. That was an evil plan carried out by somebody evil, plain and simple, and yet God used it to reach scores of people for all of eternity. Some of you are suffering in different ways in your life. How might God want to display His power and glory through your problem? I know you want your problem to go away. Again, we want our problems to go away. Let's be honest. But how might God want to use your problem until it goes away? And what if it never does go away? What does God have planned for your life through that problem? And then quickly, I want you to see the fallout demonstrating the dividing line among men. The fallout demonstrating the dividing line uh, between men. Verses 8 through the end of the chapter. I won't read it again at this point. But I want you to notice what happens when God works. Everybody steps back, scratches their head and says, What happened? The neighbors question what's happened. The Pharisees didn't like what happened because Jesus did it on the Sabbath. By making clay, Jesus, they said that Jesus would have been guilty of kneading. You think of kneading dough? He would have been guilty of kneading on the Sabbath according to their law. Also, they had a regulation that you could not heal on the Sabbath unless it was a life or death situation. And so if you happened upon somebody that had a broken leg, you could make them more comfortable, but you were not even allowed to set the bone on the Sabbath. That's how ridiculous they'd become with all their laws. 
But I want you to notice what begins happening to the blind man himself. He first of all says what? The man who is called Jesus did this. Then down by verse 17, what's he say? He's a prophet. Then the Pharisees call in the, uh, the parents. You see, they want to try to prove that this man was not the man born blind. If they can prove that, that this is a case of mistaken identity, that Jesus either didn't do what's claimed that he did, or that the one healed has been switched to somebody else, then it would be a scheme of deception. When the parents don't give them their ammunition, they call the man in again. And they say, give glory to God. In other words, they're saying... Tell the truth. The blind man recounts everything and says, How can he be a sinner? God doesn't hear sinners. He's probably thinking about King David in Psalm 66 where David says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. He goes on and says, But God heard Jesus, so he must be from God. No one's ever opened eyes before. He must be from God. And so what's this man done? He's gone from saying he's a man to he's a prophet. He's not a sinner. He's from God. He's got a direct line from God. Folks, do you see what's happening? You see what's happening with this guy? The more and more he's asked about what happened and the more and more he thinks about it, he's coming to see who Jesus is. And that's the point here. When God works in the midst of suffering, people don't understand it a lot of times. They ask, how could this situation be turned around? But then God works through it. And they see God working through it. And finally what happens? If they're a Christian, they grow. If they're not a Christian, oftentimes through that problem, they come to faith in Jesus because of it. Verses 38 and following, the climax to the whole story. Jesus finds the man, talks to him further. And finally, what does the man say? I believe. And he worships Jesus. Isn't that great? Folks, what I want you to see is the very thing that you might be cursing the most in your life. A trial a tribulation, an illness, a divorce, a job loss, whatever it is that you're looking back on in your life. Maybe you're bitter about it, you're blaming God, you're blaming others, you're angry about it. That might be the very thing in your life that God is wanting to use to bless your life in a more ultimate way. He might want to use that to bring you to faith in Christ if you're not a Christian. If you are a Christian, he'll use that to deepen your understanding of who he is. Could that be what's going on in somebody's life here this morning? 
We've been talking about Joseph on, on Wednesday nights. Same case with Joseph. All that bad stuff that happened to him, 17 years old, gets sold into slavery, ends up in prison down in Egypt because he had an unfortunate encounter with Mrs. Weinstein. Some of you need to think about that. He met a Mrs. Weinstein. He wouldn't sleep with her. He ends up in prison. In a prison back then, a destitute place, not like prisons. I mean, prisons today, I'm sure, aren't nice places either. But back then, they really weren't good places at all. Joseph ends up in a place like that. It's not until he's 30 years old until he gets out. Think of all those years, a young man. And finally, Joseph gets to the end of everything that's happened to him after he's been promoted. And he says to his brothers, What you meant for evil, God used for good, that many people would ultimately be saved. What's God trying to teach you in the suffering you're going through? And how might God want to use that to bring glory to Himself in the lives of other people? Would you bow in prayer with me, please? Now, understandably, you might be thinking, Pastor... You've not answered my question this morning about my suffering. No, I haven't. I understand that. I don't know the specifics of your suffering. But if your suffering is not because of one of those other reasons we mentioned, maybe it's this one. Maybe God is going to do something through your suffering that you cannot see at the moment what He's going to do. But just think about it. Maybe God is going to use your specific suffering to do something that's going to result in far greater praise of God. You need to realize that. Just because you can't put your finger on it right now as to what God's going to do doesn't mean that He's not going to do something great. Ask God to use your suffering to reach others and bring Him glory. Instead of wallowing in pity, trust Him to glorify Himself through it and to reach others. You need to trust God. God is able to bring beauty out of your ashes. He's a good God. He can't do evil. He can't be tempted by evil. He's a good God. What He sends our way is for His purposes. For others who are not Christians, why do you think God is allowing some of the things He is? Could it be to get your attention? You see, far worse than your suffering that you're going through would be dying without a Savior. Think of that. You die without a Savior... And you're in a place the Bible calls hell for all of eternity. God may be wanting to use your suffering to get your attention to draw you to Jesus Christ. Come to Him today.
Father, you know why we go through the things we go through. Lord, things are not accidents or coincidence. You're not a God who doesn't know tomorrow and doesn't know about the problems of our life. God, use our problems for your greater glory. And use our problems to bring us to faith in Jesus like you did with this man born blind. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.